Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today. We hope that you'll participate in the conversation. Uh, in a minute, we'll be looking at chapter 17 of, of Acts. I was going to say Luke, but Luke wrote it. Uh, we're going to look at three different scenarios or three different events that Paul was involved in and uh, the Apostle Paul. So we're going to uh, take a look at that and unpack that a little bit. If you're coming in on the uh, Zoom app, please be sure to click on the Q&A button so that your little Q&A window is up and type in or text in any questions or comments that you'd like to add to the program. Uh, or click the um, hand icon and let us know you want to come in with your voice. Use the computer audio. If you're coming in off of, uh, let's see, Scott, we're on your Facebook page, if I'm not mistaken. If you're coming in from Scott's Facebook page, then just use the comment box and we'll be monitoring it, monitoring all your texts and comments there. Keep in mind, though, that the Facebook page does have a delay. It's about an 18-second, roughly, delay uh, behind, behind the actual event of us speaking. And speaking of Scott, our program director, Scott, how you doing? I'm doing well, Drew. I've been out of town some lately, and so good to be back with you guys. Oh, we're so glad you're back. Yeah, and Stephen. Stephen's with us today. How you doing, Stephen? Doing well, Drew. Glad to be here. And Jonathan is again with us, uh, as usual, carrying on a lot of, uh, wearing a lot of hats. Jonathan, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you guys. Okay, so uh, Scott, why don't you take it away? And what do you want to do with uh, what do you want to discuss there? In that? All right, first, let's just very, very briefly set the stage for Acts 17 for those that might not be familiar with it. So, Acts is a book that covers about 30 years of history in the early church from about the death and resurrection of Christ up to about 30, 32 years later. Uh, and in this section, we are in what we call the missionary journeys of Paul. Sometimes it's referred to that way. And which of those journeys are we in here in Acts 17? First, second, or third? It's going to be his second missionary journey. Second missionary journey. And he has just left Philippi, where he's established the church that he writes to when he writes to Philippians. And he's about to establish the Thessalonian church, which will be, of course, the church that he will later write, write to in Thessalonians. All right, so in, in time-wise, we're shortly before, we're right around 50 AD or so. Uh, after this, just not long after this at all, he's going to get to Corinth right around 50 AD. So this might be early 50, late 49, I'm not sure exactly, but right in that ballpark. All right, no, okay. go ahead. I thought I read somewhere that the there's like an arc that he's traveled between his missions from one and then returning back. Jerusalem. Well, someone, I think I read it that that arc covers about a thousand miles. Oh, it's a huge distance. I don't remember yeah. the exact miles, but it's, yeah, it's, it's quite large. And he always leaves from what city? Antioch. Oh, Antioch. Antioch of Syria. Antioch of Syria. Um, and a couple of times he heads to Jerusalem. One time he heads back to Antioch, but it's always from Antioch that he goes out. All right. So, Acts 17, verse 1, and one last thing to note, who's with him at this point on the second missionary journey? Luke had gotten to Philippi with him, but we arrive, Luke is the author of Acts, but they go on. So Luke apparently stays at Philippi or goes a different direction, but who would be with Paul at this point? Silas is one of them, right? Yep. yep. Silas Timothy. And, Silas and Timothy. 
So we're looking at Paul, Silas, also known as Silvanus, and Timothy. Acts 17, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, these are towns uh, up between Thessalonica and Philippi. Uh, Philippi, by the way, was the first church Paul established on European soil, what we now call Europe. And he's coming to Thessalonica, which was the capital city of Macedonia. This is north of uh, Athens, Greece and stuff. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned from, with them from the scriptures. And somebody read and then comment on verse three. What did he do from the scriptures? It says that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. All right. So, what would be a primary passage, would you suppose, that he was using from the Hebrew Scriptures, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet? What would be a primary passage from the Old Testament that he would use to show that the Christ would have to suffer? Isaiah 52 or, 50, 52 or 53? Uh, that song starts at the end of 52 and it goes into 53. 53 is where most of it is. Um, what might be another passage on his suffering? Psalm 22. Yeah. And then he says, and showed with from them from the scriptures that he had to rise from the dead. What might be some scriptures that he would use there? Psalm 16 is one that the New Testament authors use. Which Peter uses in Acts 2. Um, Paul also talks about uh, Psalm 2 some. And then Jesus talks about the book of Jonah, how uh, there was the sign of Jonah who three days in the belly of the whale or fish, etc. One point I'd like to make about this before we move on, then we do need, I'm slowing us down too much. I need to keep our pace up is noting that not everything that we see Paul say in his epistles is everything that he said. For instance, it's kind of striking. Paul doesn't quote Isaiah 53 very often. He does, but not very often. Uh, for instance, he quotes it in Romans 10. But lest someone think, oh, Paul didn't use Isaiah 53. Paul, when writing back to a church that already knows Jesus is the Christ, is making other points than Paul needed to make when he was establishing a church and showing that the Jews in the synagogue need to believe in Jesus Christ. Any comments or discussion on that? I think it's also helpful to see that Paul is explaining and proving this from the scriptures is he's going to a Jewish audience. He's using texts that they would recognize as being from God. And he's not just saying, well, figure out how you feel about it. He, he's saying this is that. Yes. That this Jesus that I'm talking to you about, he is the anointed one from the scriptures that you read and that you already trust in. And so he takes these Jews from a point where they already were and moves them to a place where they need to believe in the yeah. reasoning that Paul's going through with them and saying, Jesus is the Christ and, and you need to accept that. And it, that changes everything. Yes. And also, and also there would have been Jews that were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ as they were dispersed out. Yes. He mentions that in what, 1 Corinthians, I think, 15, about how there's a lot of, a lot of witnesses here that saw him alive. You guys can go check them out. Talk to them. So yeah. that's, 
or proof. And, and that idea, I think, is pretty important right now in our culture because one thing that I've noticed lately is often, often, when I'm talking to people that are of a spiritual or religious mindset, they seem to want to talk to me about their personal experiences. And they'll look into my eye and tell me what they think God said to them or did for them. And, and they, they kind of look at you and you're just supposed to accept what they said. Whether it's, I had one guy tell me how the angel Gabriel came and stayed with him for seven days. He met him at Coney Island, you know, and uh, I asked, what did he look like? Well, he had a plaid jacket, leather pants, and a Band-Aid on his finger. Um, you know, and then all sorts of things. But we need more than just somebody coming and looking earnestly in our eyes and telling us something. Paul's going to the scripture here. All right, let's move on. Verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, saying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And we'll get back there in a minute. Um, several things in this. What comes to your mind first as you look at this, Jim? Well, the Jews are a pretty rough crowd. <laughs> They're uh, uh, ready to... Uh, oppose and really, you know, taking these wicked men to stir up the opposition against Paul, they're not acting righteously. They're taking guys that they know are wicked and, and using even them to stir up uh, this crowd to silence Paul because of their jealousy. You know, back in, in the first missionary journey at Antioch of Pisidia, similarly, the unbelieving Jews combined with the city leaders um, uh, cast them out. Right. What else are you noticing here? Let me point this out. This is just a minor thing. But I used to, uh, years ago, I had the impression that Paul had established the church at Thessalonica in just three weeks. And where did I get that impression from? Well, it says Verse that, two. yeah, uh, Paul went in and for three sap days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So I thought, wow, look what he did in three weeks. Actually, that could have been two weeks if he got there on a Friday. Uh, yeah, could have been <laughs> there, but all I know this, where you're going. Go ahead. all this, you got to be careful reading Luke and not jump to assumptions. This doesn't say he spent three weeks in Thessalonica. It said he spent three Sabbath days reasoning from the scriptures where? In the, synagogue. in the synagogue. In the synagogue. Now, when we get to the book of First Thessalonians, written not long after this, Paul writing back to them and commending them for how they, well they've done in the midst of persecution, he commends them also that they had turned away from, from idols to serve yes. the living God. 
Yeah, so a lot of the Thessalonian church is made up of people that had been idol-worshiping Gentiles. So guess what? That's not the Jews here in the synagogue. So verse 2 isn't telling us this is the amount of time that he spent in Thessalonica and then left. This is the amount of time he spent in the synagogue. He did not. Back in Antioch of Pisidia, how many weeks did he get to spend in the synagogue? Two. Remember, he preached one Sabbath, and they said, come back the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath, when a bunch of the people from the town were there, the leader started blaspheming, and he said, fine, I'm sure, well, not fine, but your blood be upon you, I'm turning to the Gentiles. And so this, this is a pattern. He'll start in the synagogue, where as Stephen pointed out, there's a basis of people that already know of a Messiah to come to hear the Hebrew prophecies. And when he's done what he can do there, where does he always move to? Just the Gentiles. Yeah. All right. Um, one other note. Usually when Paul introduces somebody in a text, he tells us who they are, where they're from. Like the first time we see Barnabas, we're told where he's from, the Isle of Cyprus, what tribe he is of Levi, uh, that his name was Joseph, and they renamed him Barnabas. When we first see Saul, he's a young man, Saul of Tarsus, holding the coats, and he'll become more important later. Jason is mentioned here not with any introduction. Who's the book of Luke written to? Theophilus. Theophilus. In the language in chapter 1 of, of Acts and Luke would indicate that he's apparently a government official. Macedonia had a capital, and it is Thessalonica, so you would have government officials there. It may be that Theophilus was a member of the church at Thessalonica by the time Acts is written. Um, it, it doesn't have to be that way, but that would explain why, in contrast to Luke's normal pattern of introducing a character and letting you know who he is, here he speaks of Jason the way I might speak of Drew or Stephen or Jonathan. You know, if I'm talking to one of you guys and I say, oh, Drew said this, or this happened to, to, to Jonathan, you guys know who I'm talking about. Right. We don't need a Jonathan from so-and-so or, you know, some other identify. Oh, there's a friend of mine named Jonathan. Does that, like he just kind of slips Jason's name in there. Like, Oh yeah, Theophilus, you know, Jason. Um, yeah, I suspect that's the case. All right. Now let's comment on in verse, not, uh, verse 10. Uh, they sent Paul and Silas away. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep in the middle of wolves. And he said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. doves. How, how does this illustrate that? Well, there were a number of times whenever Paul would, uh, would be, I think, as, as wise as a serpent in that you see the whole city forming an uproar. And so probably a good idea to move on to the next city yeah. um, instead of standing there and getting thrown in prison and maybe killed and Things yeah. like that. But there were also times where Paul did get thrown in prison. There was a lot of discretion in, in his choices. Yeah, yeah. Jesus also Not said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Yes, that's right. That's right. Very good. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, and so you're not always able to avoid it. And when it comes to him, Paul always does what? Heads out. Oh. Endures it, goes through it, and keeps preaching. But if you know it's coming, it's kind of foolish to sit there and just wait for them to come beat you or, or and that type of thing. So they get out of town. Verse 11. They've come to Berea, 
And of course, at the end of verse 10, when they got to Berea, this is a little farther inland, farther from the uh, sea there. Um, of course, they immediately went to where? The synagogue. Yeah. And by the way, uh, it's on a micro level, this illustrates kind of the way it, Jesus, when he sent the disciples out on the limited commission, he said, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, go to Jews. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah. And then in the Great Commission, all nations. Uh, in Romans, it says to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And that's the same order that you see Paul routinely go in when he gets to a town. He's going to start with the Jews and then to the Gentiles. This is really interesting. He comes into this synagogue in verse 11. Somebody read there for us. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word and with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. How far do you want me to read? Uh, take it down through verse 12. Uh, many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So Luke calls these people noble. It's such a good example here. Let's discuss what was so important and noble about the Bereans. And that not just the Bere- Again, this is not a contrast between the Berean citizens in general and the Thessalonican citizens in general. This is a contrast between the Berean synagogue and the general reception at the Thessalonian synagogue. What was so noble here? They were interested in receiving the word, listening and hearing it. But then they just didn't take Paul's word for it. They actually said, well, I'm going to check this out in the scriptures and see if these things are really so. Yeah. How many times have you tried to talk or reason with a person that would just not listen at all? Yeah. What do little kids do when they're having an argument and they don't want to hear what the other person's saying? Blah, 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 blah. Sometimes I do this, right? Nan, yeah. nan, I can't hear you. Do you remember what the text says the Jewish leaders did when Stephen finished his sermon? Stopped their ears, gnashed their, their teeth, and ran. Here, yeah. Uh, these people are willing to listen. But they're not gullible. They're willing to listen and then they examine the scriptures how often? Daily. Daily. For what purpose? See, See if these, these things, things are so. Yeah, so somebody maybe paint a picture for us between uh, a stubborn person, a gullible person, and a reasonable person. Stubborn person just doesn't want to hear anything outside of their little world. And if something comes along that contradicts what they already believe, they are going to resist it. They'll come up with any old argument they can to go against it. And even if those arguments fail, they just don't want to believe it. They might attack the person themselves. And that's kind of what the Jews do. They don't try to reason and say, Paul, no, no, you've misunderstood the Christ. They get wicked men, form a mob and drive them out of town. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's sometimes, sometimes for that type of person, Stephen, we use the term, Oh, don't confuse me. Don't confuse the facts. How's that go? Confuse don't, me with the facts. Yeah. Don't confuse me with the facts. Yeah. Right. And so, and all of us can be stubborn with things we've believed for a long time. It's easy for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Then there's on the other extreme, you got the gullible person that will just believe the last person they heard on something. Yeah. Uh, and they're back and forth. And it reminds me of the proverb, you know, that says the first person to argue his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And there's people who just will believe 
anybody who has a good story, anybody who seems sincere, anybody who has a powerful way of presenting what they're saying, they're just like, oh, oh, this must be true. And they don't check it out. They just believe it. And in this postmodern world culture that we're in now, there's people that will believe both. You can have two arguments that, oh, I believe it both. I, it's just, if somebody says it, they're for it. And then, of course, a reasonable person does what? Weighs the argument, thinks about, hey, these can't both be true. Or, well, what one person said sounded right, but now I've heard some arguments to the contrary. I've got to think about this some more. And then the truth rises to the top. And well, in this case, the, re- the reasonable person will also then look for evidence to support that. There you go. And so since this is news about the Messiah, the, and not, not politics, they go to the Word of God in the, the Scriptures. So, by the way, just notice how you see those three personalities on the Internet these days. You've got your, your, your closed-minded people. You know, they're in, they're in their bubble. And here's the websites that they go to and they all feed off one another and tell each other how right they are. And they're not interested in looking at something else. And then you have the gullible people, you know, that respond to the Nigerian princess email. <laughs> and then you have, and then you, we need to be reasonable people who will take a look at some facts. All right. So uh, after looking at the scriptures, what was the result? Many of them believed, and not just yeah. a few women. They included a lot of women in there, and also I think there was a term that said high-ranking or high-standing. Yes, yes. Not a few Greek women of high-standing. Luke has a tendency to, when he wants to tell you it's a lot, he'll say it wasn't a few, it was a lot. Uh, that's his way of saying it. Um, notice this was both true in Thessalonica and Berea. Greek women were in, in some ways, a pretty unfair situation uh, in Greek society. And there, there's the old uh, Greek statement, this wouldn't be true of everybody, but it would have been, imagine, too typical. Uh, the Greek writer that said, we have wives to bring up legitimate children. We have mistresses for daily use, and we have heteri, the high-dollar prostitutes, for pleasure. Uh, in that empty pagan culture, some of the people that the gospel and, and even the, the, just the principles of the Hebrew scriptures and the morality there, because uh, some of these uh, women seem to have probably been maybe attending the synagogue as well, perhaps. Um, the, the early church, I think there was a really strong presence of noble women who saw something better for themselves and for their children. Uh, the Acts chapter 16 had Lydia. Uh, and here we've got women mentioned both in this text and in the next. All right, let's keep moving. Um, so things are going great in Berea until what? So somebody read 13 through 15 for us, please. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Wait wait, 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 Scott, Scott, how far apart is Thessalonica and Berea? Um, 
It's not real far apart. I'm, I'm going to guess somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 miles, but it might be more like 60. But if you uh, don't have a car, 20 to 30 miles is a long distance to go track someone down who you're not happy with because he was saying things you don't like. And it's, it's not as far as they travel. And somebody check that, please, if somebody can look up just the distance there. Working on uh, it. Maria is west of uh, Thessalonica, inland a bit. But there was an even farther distance when you go back to the first missionary journey, the same pattern. You had the unbelieving uh, leaders of the synagogue combined with the unbelieving leaders of the city. They cast Paul out of Antioch of the city. He goes over to Iconium. They're planning to stone him there. He finds out about it. He leaves town, goes down to Lystra. Things start off well at Lystra, and then people from Antioch and Iconium heard he was at Lystra, and they came after him. So this is the second time this has happened. Stephen. Looks like it's about 45 miles. 45? So that makes 45. Okay. So that right. even makes it even more of a distance than the 30. Yeah. And, and you're talking about, I mean, what was, it, what was their problem? Well, they were taking it too personally, right? I mean, they, they didn't like what they were hearing. And you, it may have been uh, complicated by the fact, guess what? You remember when Jesus said, I came not to send peace, but a sword to set a daughter-in-law against the father-in-law, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Paul, while he is not an unbeliever, already has relatives who are believers. There in Romans 16, he mentions some of his relatives who had been in Christ before him. But we see how actively Paul is trying to stop this. So probably what might have contributed to this is that Paul was having success in other words, in Acts 17, these men that have turned the world upside down. So if your nephew or niece or your son or your daughter or your wife has become a disciple, and you'll see this sometimes, you'll be studying the Bible with somebody, and somebody will start changing their life in compliance with the teachings and principles of Jesus Christ. And how many times have you seen this? Their relatives or family get very upset and start saying, oh, this is a cult. This is dangerous. This is to follow the teachings of Christ. Uh, and so that type of thing probably contributed to it. Other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the people from Thessalonica were saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Yeah. Um, so, so they've heard about this movement and they've been kind of on their guard about it. And now they're saying, oh, they've gone on to Berea. We're going to continue our efforts to shut this thing down. Yeah, and this it, is still early it, on. The move, the movement's only been in existence. I think you said about twenty five miles, twenty five miles, twenty five years or so. At this point, only twenty. Twenty. It's even younger. After the death of Christ, roughly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's get to Paul and Athens. Verse sixteen. Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. This is kind of significant. Jesus sent them out by twos. He didn't send them out alone. He sent them out by twos. On the first missionary journey, it was Paul and Barnabas. And they also took along John Mark. When they disagreed on whether to take John Mark for the second, Barnabas took John Mark and Paul chose a partner, Silas, to go with him. Then picked up Timothy and Luke. You don't see Paul in these, so far here in these journeys just going places alone. At this point, he's he he. It's good to have a partner. He wants a partner, and he had said, "Is he uh, after being put on the ship here and getting to Athens?" 
he sent the command back. Tell Silas and Timothy to get here as soon as possible. So he's all alone. But while he's waiting for them to get there, can he keep quiet? No, he can't. Not once he sees the city. Yeah, it's full of idols. So he's reasoning where? In the synagogues again. With the Jews and devout persons and in the open marketplace. Every day with those that happen to be there. And he catches the attention of some people. Whose attention uh, does he catch? Philosophers, uh, Greek philosophers. That's called, they're called Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers. Epicurean. Stoic, uh, just, this won't be a very fair description, but just roughly. Uh, for Stoic, that was don't get carried away with your emotions. So this is not accurate. It's exaggerated. But what Star Trek character might you think of? to represent Stoicism. Spock. Spock. Yeah, yeah. In Epicureans, their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. See, Athens was famous for philosophy. Stephen. Oh, no, I was just doing the Vulcan salute. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very good. Uh, all right, so uh, they're conversing with him. And others said, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was teaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him up to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, Stephen, you want to comment on that verse and as it relates to our last two cities? Yeah, so, so the Athenians are here, and they just love to hear something different than what they've heard already. And they're fascinated just by the idea of something new and different. And there's something exciting about things that are new, uh, things that, oh, I haven't heard that before. Huh, that's interesting. But the problem becomes when we are interested in novelty for novelty's sake. And just because something's new or just because it's different than what we grew up hearing or it's different than what we've heard before is what seems to capture the attention of these Athenians. And I mean, this is something that happens today all the time is it just feels like you can't stay the same for very long at all anymore. And it seems like things are changing at a more and more rapid rate uh, for what it's worth. Like people just, change their business logos or change their website or change their whatever. It's just like, we, we all have to have new, 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 new all the time. And so the Athenians uh, are always wanting to hear something new. And that is kind of, it's interesting to them, but it seems to be more of an intellectual exercise, more than an honest exercise of seeking the truth. And in contrast to Thessalonica, had the Thessalonians wanted to hear something new. No, most of the ones, the opponents certainly didn't. And then in between there, you've got the Bereans who were willing to do what? Hear something new, but not necessarily accept it or reject it immediately. They're willing to examine it and then compare it to the scriptures to see if this new thing is true or not. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, this gives Paul an opportunity to speak. So he's going to speak. And Jonathan, we're going to read a couple of verses here, and then I'm going to ask you to comment on the difference between Paul's synagogue sermons and Paul's sermon here in Athens and why it's so different. 
Paul addresses the Areopagus here in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives himself, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from every, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed in the art and imagination of man. And we'll pick up there in a minute. But so far, why? how is this very different than a synagogue sermon, and why is it important that it uh, is different than a synagogue sermon? Well, in a, in a synagogue back in Thessalonica, it says that he reasoned to them from the scriptures. So um, that was his, his starting point, starting in the scriptures, and he was proving that, that, well, first, he was proving that the Christ needed to suffer and rise from the dead. Right. Um, now, these, these philosophers here in Athens, they realized back in, uh, what is it, verse 18, that he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they, they're kind of interested in that because they never heard anything like that. The Jews back in Thessalonica, being Jewish, would have been familiar with the scriptures, familiar with the Jewish religion. They would have been familiar with the idea of a Christ and this Messiah that was coming. And Paul was using the scriptures that they were already familiar with Yes. Prove that that was Jesus. And that, yeah. Paul comes out and he says that. He says, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Christ. Yeah. In Athens, he's working with a bunch of Gentile philosophers that probably aren't looking for a Christ. Um, and that's pretty apparent by their, their religion. Yeah. Yeah. He's, that's pretty apparent by their religion and all the idols that are everywhere in the city. So where Paul starts is by talking about their religion. Uh, I perceive you're pretty religious. I've noticed your religion. I've been walking around your city and seeing all the idols. And I, while I was noticing, I noticed this unknown God. Let me tell you about him. And then he goes through. And the things that he quotes, he's not quoting from scriptures. He's quoting from, he even says, um, some of your poets. Um, yeah. Making points from, from their philosophy to prove the existence of God and who God is. Or to back up what he's saying and, and to right. hit a common ground. Right. This is so important in evangelism that we need to start where the person is at. Uh, a person outside of Christ, they're not in Christ yet, so we want to get them to Christ. But where we start is, is pretty crucially important. Uh, we're not going to take time to read it, but if anybody in the audience would like to read a synagogue sermon, it doesn't mean it's got the whole thing. But if you go back to Acts 13, starting in verse 16, Luke records one of Paul's synagogue sermons for us. And it started with Jewish history. And uh, it talked about, um, you know, coming out of the land of Egypt and the 40 years in the wilderness and on and on. And Samuel they, takes him through Jewish history and ends up where? Christ. Jesus Christ. 
in, on Mars Hill, he goes through no Jewish history. He doesn't quote the Hebrew Old Testament because he's not talking to Hebrews. He starts where they're at, but he's going to end up where? Christ. Jesus Christ, yeah. And the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch who happens to be in Isaiah 53, wanting to know who that's talking about, Philip began at that scripture and preached to him Christ. So it's just really helpful to think about, well, here's a person I want to help. Where are they at? Start there and build towards Christ. Comments or your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's amazing that Paul, I mean, he's a pretty well-educated guy, and he uses that education to build common ground with people. And that's something that we can do as well. It's not that we need to spend all of our time learning about sports or politics or any number of things, but we're to be in the world, but not of the world. But living in the world, living in the city that we're in, knowing things about current events can be useful when establishing common ground with people and trying to build a bridge from what they're familiar with to something that they maybe haven't heard or haven't considered before. And Paul does a really good job here of walking around the city, seeing the, the idol things, and he found one to the unknown God and used that as his starting point uh, to build a bridge to get through to these people. Now, does that mean you're going to get to everybody? No. We're going to see in a minute the reaction of the people. Some of them are persuaded, but some of them aren't going to accept the resurrection of the dead, no matter what starting point you, you, you go with. But I do think this is a great point to focus on because we can do something parallel to that in our culture as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to describe uh, a comment. I want to see if any of you guys have ever heard this. So once upon a time, a fellow said to me, he said, I'm willing to study with anybody that will agree that the Bible is the authority. You know, as long as we agree that the Bible is the authority, I'll study with anybody. What's the problem with that? Not as many people as used to believe that the Bible is the authority. And no matter what time period you're in, this, these people that Paul's talking to in Athens didn't accept the Old Testament scriptures yeah, as authoritative. Yeah. And, and he still preached to them. Synagogue, when he went to the synagogue, did they agree in, for, on the New Testament? No, they didn't no. agree that Jesus was the Christ. I was trying to prove that to him. If Paul... If Paul got to town and said, okay, I'm going to be willing to talk to people that already accept that, you know, this right here is the word of God, Genesis, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, et cetera. Otherwise, there's no point in talking. Who would Paul talk to? Nobody. Not many people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, start where people are at and then get them uh, to where, help, help them get to where they need to be if they'll listen to the word. All right, we're going to run out of time if we don't move on here, so let's do that. Um, now, in verse 30, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? Repent. Repent. Change your mind. Important. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Boom. Verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Uh, and this was in, in philosophical thought, in Greek thought. This was just not 
in accord with their philosophical ideas. They believed in an afterworld, but the idea of resurrection, uh, of bodily resurrection, they they were opposed to that. And that's why I imagine- Wait a minute, wait a minute. Scott, Scott. Yes. Who would believe that anybody could reverse death? Most people in general know by natural experience, but in their religious beliefs, they were, they were opposed to the idea. This was something kind of peculiar to the Greeks. So they had Hades as a Greek word. They, you know, believed in life. Some of them believed in life before death, life after death, but they viewed the body as something you wanted to escape and be unburdened from. And so this is why you have some of Paul's language that we're not looking just to be unclothed, but to have the resurrected body. And this is why at Corinth, listening to the philosophers, some at the church of Corinth that said, oh, there's not going to be a resurrection. And Paul deals with their supposed objection. Well, what kind of body would they have? And he says, well, the body that you plant in the ground, it's not the same body that's going to come up, but there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be this uh, resurrected form of the body that's going to be a spiritual body. And, but there was a lot of resistance to that among the Greeks. And so here at this point in the lesson, they began to mock. Others said, well, here again. So Paul went out from their midst, but wasn't a big acceptance here, but somebody read verse 34 for us. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was the, the Anastasius, the Arab rabbi guy. Can't even say these words, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay, so one of the notable guys there, uh, and this one, so not a huge response, but but some. And and yet, to your point, Drew, yeah, just in general, just saying that a dead person, you know, came back to life is the exact opposite of what we nearly get. In addition to it being opposed to their philosophy ideas. Go ahead, Drew. Yeah, and that's the point I wanted to make. And it was so foreign to them. This is a very, I overlooked this in the past. He talks about a day in the future that they can't see because it's in the future, right? God yeah. is appointed a time. You can't yeah. see it. But I, you can be assured of it. Well, what kind of an assurance? You need a physical assurance to predict or prove that something will happen. Like when Jesus said, well, what's easier to do? Say you, your sins are forgiven or, to, or right. right? So this is the same thing that's going on here. He has given assurance to all by reversing death. Yeah. And you right. have evidence. You could go check it out. You got the empty tomb. You got the witnesses. This has happened. There's proof that it's happened. And so that is a major point that he sends home, which is why some of them believed it. But I, you're saying it was such an anathema for them to believe this kind of fairy tale stuff. Even when faced with that facts and that evidence, a lot of them said, ah, don't bother me with the facts, please. And in addition to like when he writes to the Corinthian church on this same issue of resurrection, he says, and about 500 brethren once saw many of whom are still alive. In other words, they could be, you know, checked with. But in addition to that, there were also the signs of an apostle given to Paul and others who, who did things, again, going back to for evidence. All right, well, we're down to just a couple minutes to go. Final thoughts, gentlemen. It's just fascinating when you compare all three of these cities and think about the world that we live in. All three of these mentalities exist around us now. 
Um, there are people who are kind of set and stubborn. They don't want to hear anything new. Even if you confront them with facts and evidence, the wall has gone up. Yeah. Then there are people like the Athenians who are, oh, very excited to hear something new. Oh, that's cool. And maybe even they try to accept it right along with everything else they already believe. That's becoming an increasingly popular way to approach things. I mean, just have a smorgasbord. Oh, yeah, we'll add some of your ideas too. Everybody's welcome. No, no real truth here. Just we like all these different ideas. Um, and uh, what we want to do is be like the Bereans. Uh, we want to be open to correction. We want to be open to something that we've missed that might be new to us, but not just accept it or reject it based on what we've already known. And that's, uh, I think, the, the Bereans are such a good example to us. Uh, let me ask any one of you guys, have you ever changed your thought or belief on the scripture years after when you already had one? Oh, sure. Perception, right? I mean, you've done that. Yeah. So we are to do that. We are to be able to say, let me look and see what the scripture says, because I could have been wrong on that. Yeah. An open mind is, it's kind of, a mind is kind of like a parachute. If you're not willing to open it, you're going to have problems. <laughs> but you also open your mind in order to use it. And so when they searched the scriptures to see if it was so, and then many believed and became convinced of it, then, you know, that's the, the, they opened their mind and then they used it. Jonathan, final thoughts. Uh, it's a really simple point, but the point that you kind of made um, – and uh, I don't want to spend too long talking about this because we're, we're out of time. But you said that um, with both with Thessalonica and with, with Athens, um, it specifically mentions that, that he started at where they were at and then got them to Jesus. Um, you need to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one who, who God is going to judge the world through in both of those instances. And just that idea is, is very simple, but I think so important um in, in the world because there are all kinds of different motivations and reasons why people want to explore religion um or get involved with a with a certain group of religious people um but the reason that paul keeps going back to and other evangelists we see in scriptures they start where the person's at and bring them to jesus and so it's not we're trying to get them into a specific like our social club or our group or um or, or trying to join some other uh, for some other purpose we we teach this truth behind scripture to get people to see Jesus and come to Jesus. And I think that's just really simple, but I think a really important thing to, to remember. And that's, that's evidenced here. What, what Paul does over and over in every city that he goes to. And one of the other things too, I'm sorry to go beyond the time as well, but this, the, uh, who was it? Was it the Thessalonians, the Thessalonicas that, that were saying that they're overturning the world? Yeah, these men who turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, you can't overturn the world with a myth, a false premise, or something that's a lie. Because it's going to be, it'll be found out, and it'll just disappear. But this message truly has since then, to this day, it overturns the world. That, to me, is another part of the evidence of, of who Jesus Christ is. And may we keep teaching it and keep helping it turn lives. There you go. Amen. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. It was a good unpacking of chapter 17 of Acts. 
We look forward to seeing everybody next week. We invite you all to come back next uh, Tuesday at two o'clock and everyone have a great week and see you next time. Well, I, the same, several of us will not be here next week. So just a heads whoa, up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. None of us are going to be here next week. There's a yeah. total blackout here because everyone's going to camps, right? Doing work. You're working at these camps, right, guys? Mm-hmm. Great, great. Okay, so maybe I'll come down there with a with a with a, my webcam and just video you guys do a live stream of you guys working the, the different things. Yeah, we're not going to be all that far from your neck of the woods. Well, I was invited to come down, so you know, if I show up my little uh, go cam. Very good, very good. All right, guys, have a great week. Have a great next week, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, guys.